Okay, we've been talking about, this is part five of uh, 10,000 Reasons. We've been talking about some of the reasons why our heart should delight in God, why our heart should rejoice in God our Savior, because He's so beautiful. And, and these are some of the reasons. We've been looking at some of the attributes of God. His uh, mutability last week, we talked about the fact that God does not change. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the God of patience, His infinite long-suffering and forbearance with us, and patience with us even after we have come to know Him and, and come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Um, we talked about his faithfulness, his, his loving kindness, his compassions that, that fell not. Uh, I, I, I loved last week's uh, close. We, we said that, that he is the only one who could sing the ultimate love song. The ultimate love song being, I'll love you till the end of time. I'll love you when the stars fall from the sky. And that literally will come to pass because there's a day coming in which God is going to roll up this universe like an old blanket and produce a new heaven and a new earth. So I said last week that he is more committed to his children than he is to this creation, to this universe. God is committed to his covenant people. This morning, what I want to talk to you about is the grace of God and the God of grace. The grace of God. And there is a distinction because God does give grace, but he is in himself. One of his attributes is Absolutely, the grace of God. You know, uh, as a teenager, I think back, you know, it's amazing that I got through it. Uh, I don't know about you, but, you know, I did some pretty stupid things when I was a teenager. Uh, when I was about 14, we hung out uh, on this corner of 80th Street in uh, Ozone Park. Uh, 80th Street and Atlantic Avenue, there was like a kind of a, a, an ice cream parlor, luncheonette kind of a place where we hung out, you know, and a whole bunch of people, you know, uh, w- w- would hang out there, teenagers. I was about 14, I think, at the time, this particular incident, and uh, uh, this, this guy comes, comes down the block. Uh, his name was Babes. I, I imagine it was his nickname. can't remember what his real name was, but, but uh, Babes comes, comes driving down. He's about 16 years old, come, comes driving down the block with a stolen car. And it was an old jalopy, you know. Uh, it was probably like a 1949, you know. I mean, it would be worth something today, but at the time it was, you know, just a piece of junk. And he comes driving that. It's a joyride. That's what we used to call it, a joyride. So he comes, there's a whole bunch of us jump in the car. Stupid, right? Just jump in the car and go for a ride. And uh, you think that's dumb. What is even dumber was my turn to drive. And I'm driving, right, in, in Woodhaven up and down the street. And be, behind us, I, I'm in the car at the time. We had the car for about a week or so, out of joy, you know, uh, joy week, you know. Uh, so we had the car for about a week, and, and it was my turn. I'm driving down the street, right, and I'm coming to a stop sign, and I, I'm 14 years old. I mean, I never had lessons, I mean, but I, it was instinctive to know how to drive, especially if you're going to steal a car, you know. So... So, so I'm driving, and there's a police squad. Now, I don't know if they call them squad cars anymore. You know, Frank, is, is, where's Frank? Is he downstairs? I don't know if they call them police squads anymore, but, but, but they had two cops in the car, and, and they were right behind us. And the three guys that were with me in the car, I'm driving, the three guys open up the doors, and they run for their lives, right? I, I'm at a stop sign. What do I do? I, you know, I didn't... I just calmly put the car in park, 
uh, went around, closed each of the doors, and, and I proceeded to go. And I cannot tell you why I was not stopped, why the police didn't put on their siren and pull me over and, you know, lock me up. My father would have killed me. But, but you know, I, probably somebody would say, you know what, there go I, but for the grace of God. No, no, no. That, that, that's, that's not the grace of God. But, but I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what, it's coming a little bit closer. But a couple of months later, uh, I'm still, you know, in that age, 14, 15 years old. Uh, this time it was New Year's Eve, and uh, some of the guys were going to get together at around 10 o'clock on New Year's Eve, and they're going to, you know, uh, do what they're not supposed to do. And uh, there's no way my father was going to let me out of the house. Italian father on New Year's Eve when you're 14 years old, no way. You ain't getting out. I've tried. I I tried as hard as I could, but there's no way I got out. So uh, Roger, Lenny, and... uh, Snyder, I can't remember his first name. I think it was Eddie. Could have been Eddie Snyder. Uh, Rob Avan for a joyride. Rob Avan probably were drinking. Drove the van into a house, into some poor person's living room. Drove the van. Aside from going to the hospital with injuries because because of driving the the, the van, into, they were all arrested and they had. From that particular point on in their life, a, a, a progressive spiral of going downward. And, and may, maybe you might say, well, 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 there go I, but for the grace of God. You know, I mean, I could have been there if I was allowed out that night. But what I've come to discover is by the theology of Scripture that, that the saying is not true, there go I, but for the grace of God, but rather, there go I, but for the God of grace. And you know, I have a feeling that probably many of us could probably look at the history of our lives and probably probably see trace evidence of the God of grace in our life, directing, redirecting, taking some of the stupid things that we've done in our life and turning it around and making it positive, making it something useful, introducing himself to us as the God of grace, not only one who gives grace and glory, but one who is full of grace. I want to look at a portion of Scripture, John chapter 1. In the Gospel of John, and I've said this before, that John's assignment is to present Jesus not in his nativity, not in his birth. He doesn't begin with Jesus as an infant. He begins with Jesus from before the foundation of the world. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. And And as such, all things were made by him and for him. And when he came into the world, the world did not know him. So John, I want to pick up in verse 14. John 1, 14 says this. The word became flesh. That is, he became one of us, human, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, the manifestation of the glory of God, the beauty of God, the the magnificence of God. When we talk about the glory of God, we talk about his splendor, his majesty. His majesty is revealed specifically in this way. He is full of grace and of truth. And John says, and of his fullness. That is, we who have received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. That's the we who, who, who he's talking about here. And we have received of his fullness grace upon grace. 
One translation says grace heaped upon grace. That is gift upon, upon gift. For the law came by Moses. Now here's the contrast. The law came by Moses. But grace and truth. Thank God for those little, those little conjunctive words there like but. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given, and the law is good, the Bible says. The law is holy, and the law is pure. The problem is with us. But the law has exposed something about our nature that we are hopelessly lost, that we are sinners, that we are in a desperate, dire situation. But grace reveals the magnificence that God has provided for us, a Savior who can rescue us from ourselves. You know, honestly, apart from a divine revelation, uh, just like, do you remember when, when Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven? Apart from a divine revelation, we don't know how sinful we are. We don't know how lost we are. We don't know, we don't know how ruined we, we, we really are. Alan, the other night, used the word uh, wicked and said that the word wicked has within it the connotation, the Hebrew word has within it the connotation of being twisted. We don't know how twisted we are apart from a revelation. And God gave the law to show how twisted and how lost and how actually depraved we are. You see, there is no blindness greater than to be blind and to not know you're blind. There's no greater lostness than to be lost and to not know that you're lost. There's no greater bondage than to know that, that, that you are in bondage, enslaved to, to sin and pleasure and lust and the powers of darkness and not know that you are enslaved to unrighteousness. Uh, there's no greater illness than to be sick and not know you're sick. And that happens all the time. It, it happens all the time. Just to illustrate all of this, uh, how many times do we hear uh, somebody who is in apparent perfect health, you know, an athlete who's, you know, a student, uh, uh, a professional who's, who's out on the field or, or on the court and, and suddenly they collapse for no apparent reason. This person who, who looked like they were the picture of health, suddenly th- th- they collapse and they, and they, they perish. Heart attack or, or uh, an aneurysm. The, the sport didn't, uh, didn't, kill them. It was, it, was, it was the sport that manifested or the exercise that manifested some underlying undiagnosed illness that they had. And so the law of God manifests and reveals what's really happening on the inside of us, that by nature we are lost and blind and in bondage. And so apart from a revelation and the God, the little G, the little G of this world, the little God of this world is doing everything in his power to keep men blind from seeing the glorious gospel, to keep men bound, to keep men lost, and to keep men sick. But the God who said, let there be light from the beginning, has commanded the light of the glorious gospel to shine into our hearts to give us the knowledge of grace. We would not know grace if it was not for a divine revelation. And if you know and understand the significance of grace this morning, it is because the God of grace has made grace known to your heart 
while you were lost and undone. I want to look at one of the most prolific scriptures on the subject of God's grace. It is, it is probably uh, the most definitive explanation of what it is that, that distinguishes us, that, that marks us as being different than others. When we were no different than anyone else, something has distinguished us from every other human being on planet Earth And it's this thing called grace. So Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, And when you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and in sins. We were dead. It was beyond desperation of illness. We were already spiritually dead toward God in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. How can, how can you, you be dead and yet walk according to the... Well, you know, there's such an emphasis on zombies these days, right? You know, you guys love to play those zombie games, you know, you kill the zombies, you know? It, yeah, the zombies are what? The, the living dead, right? And that's what we were before grace has come to us, zombies, the living dead, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, under his influence, under the sway of the wicked one, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What a description of what we once were, the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, that is, we had our behavior and our conduct According to the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature. Here's another description for us. The children of wrath, just as others, no different than anyone else, on on full course to a destiny of eternal separation from God and all that hell is and and all that it means and, and beyond my ability to comprehend. But there's that little word conjunction again, that little word but, but, verse four, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and by grace, notice the parentheses, by grace you have been saved. This is what saves us. It is grace that saves us. The one who is full of grace saves us. The one who is full of grace uses this this gifting of grace, this energy, this power, this, this supernatural entity called grace to save us and raise us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. That's positionally. That's what's happened to us in Christ. Notice this, that in the ages to come, because this ain't over yet, this doesn't just start with us when we accept Christ and we begin a journey with Christ and we may be journeying with Christ for 30, 40, 50 years. It doesn't end there when we leave this planet. It's only just begun because he says this, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus 10,000 years will pass and there'll be another mountain peak of the amazing grace of God in his kindness toward us and we will constantly be being amazed by grace. In case you missed it, verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved 
through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, the gift of God, the gift of God, God's unconditional gift. Because if it came with conditions, it wouldn't be a gift, would it? If it came with responsibilities, then it wouldn't be a gift. But it's the free gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, this is so amazing that even when our eyes are open, we need to have further revelation because, the, because we were so lost and we were so blind and we were so dead that, that it takes a lifetime to really unravel for us the riches of this grace and into eternity. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God's prepared before him that we should walk in. That last verse simply says that there's going to be evidence. If grace has really come into your life, there's going to be evidence, there's going to be proof, there's going to be, there's going to be trace evidence that, that you really know and you get what grace is all about. Because I tell you what, you can't live in unforgiveness and know anything about grace. You can't live with a lack of love and know anything about the grace of God. Then you don't get it. Grace is the great equalizer. It puts all of us on an equal level. It puts all of us on the same footing. We're all needy. We're all bankrupt. We're all, we're all unworthy. And so, so the playing field has been leveled by, by the revelation of grace. Grace is the great humbler. It humbles each and every one of us. There's no room for boasting because, because if there's something that we have received, especially as a gift, then how can we possibly brag about it if we've received it? And everything that we have received from God has come to us as a result of grace. God is merciful over all of his works, but his grace is reserved for those whom he has called and those whom he has chosen. And if you're one of the, not chosen frozen, but if you're one of the chosen called, how grateful, how thankful ought you to be this morning? Does it, does it not flaw you? Can, can, can you not sing amazing grace with, with new energy and new vitality, though you may have sung it a hundred times? Do, do we ever get over the wonder why God chose you of, of all of the millions of people in America, of all of the billions of people on planet Earth, why God chose you? I don't know. But it, it's according to his sovereign choice and his sovereign will. I will have mercy, he says, upon whom I will have mercy. Grace is unearned, it's undeserved, but, but beyond that, it is unasked for. I didn't ask for grace. Grace found me. Grace sought me. The Savior sought me, and he pursued me. He's the hound of heaven, respectfully. Even the best of men are unworthy. You know, you think about all of our righteousness, the prophet said, is as dirty garments, filthy rags. Think about, think about one Jesus said uh, was among men born of women was the greatest of men, John the Baptist. And when John looked into the pure heart of Jesus coming to be baptized, he said, I have need of being baptized of you. I am not worthy to unloose the strap on your sandals. That's right, John, you're not. In fact, there's only one, only one. The call 
in Revelation chapter 5 was, was given, the search was made in heaven, on earth, and under the earth for one person who would be found worthy. And for the space of half an hour, John says, I wept, for there was none found worthy, but behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when John turned to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, he didn't look like a, a lion. He looked like a butchered lamb. The only one that was worthy, who didn't deserve any of the things that he received, did it for us, as us, that we might be the recipients of grace. Unworthy, hopeless, and without God and without grace were we until the grace of God appeared. Notice this in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says, at one time we were all, we were all, all of us, foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That was the culture that he's talking about. And I think he was talking about the relationship between both Jews and Gentiles. We're all in the same boat. All of the different ethnic cultures, being hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared... That's when grace appeared, when Jesus made his appearance, full of grace, full of truth. He saved us, not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. We're not saved by works, by good deeds, by our righteousness. Here's a statement written by uh, Arthur W. Pink is a theologian who passed away a number of years ago. He said, the natural state, and to show how wicked we are, listen to this, he says, the natural state of the human heart is essentially legalistic. The carnal error against which the gospel has to contend is the inveterate tendency of men to rely on their own performances. The great antagonist to the truth is the pride of man which causes him to imagine that he can in part at least be his own savior be his own savior when a person falls from grace they fall into legalism when paul wrote to the galatians oh foolish galatians who has bewitched you that you have not obeyed the truth having begun in the spirit are you now made perfect in the flesh the great, the great sin is, is, to, is, to, is to fall into legalism and, and to have a pharisaical mind and to become, to, become, to become one that does not attract grace but one that repels grace. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. Blind and lost apart from the grace of God. There's no greater ignorance than to be ignorant and not know you're dumb. You know, to, to graduate magna cum laude. I'd rather graduate mocha cum latte at Starbucks, <laughs> but know the truth about the grace of God. Amen. Thank you for that, Katie. <laughs> always, always look for that Katie laugh. I mean, think about how, how bound you have to be to be enslaved and not know you're a slave. Anybody remember the Matrix? Anybody remember how hard it was to convince Neo that the life that he was living was an illusion, that he was a slave to the Matrix? 
Jesus, speaking to the religious matrix of his day, said, And you will know the truth, and the truth will, will set you free. For whom the Son will make free is free indeed. They said, We've never been in bondage to anybody. We're free. Really? Have you forgotten about 400 years of Egyptian bondage? Have you forgotten about 70 years of captivity bondage? Have you forgotten about all of the times that the various nations have come and have conquered the nation? And even at the very moment that you are slaves of the Roman Empire who were collecting your taxes, taxes and policing your streets? Now, th- th- there is no bondage like the bondage and not even knowing it. And how many people today are being led by the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, and they don't know it. The matrix is reality, but Satan is the one who is ruling this matrix. Grace is completely and absolutely a divine revelation, and even that revelation is a grace of infinite mercy to us. We would have never, man could have never imagined the grace of God. That's why you'll not find the subject of grace in any any major religion. Islam knows nothing of grace. Buddhism, uh, Hinduism knows nothing of, of the grace of God. Not even angels could have imagined the grace of God. That's why Peter says that angels themselves are curious, wondering and looking into this gospel, the gospel of grace, because only the Bible... Only the Bible reveals the grace of God as the heart of God to undeserving and unworthy people like us. Here's a contrast. Remember, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. I think we've got some of these notes up on the screen. Follow along with me. The law revealed that what we are by nature, lost, sinful, rebellious, disobedient, And thank God for the law, because the law was given to teach us of our need of Christ. Grace reveals that God is by nature loving, just, merciful, and gracious. The law speaks of what man must do. Grace tells us of what Christ has done. The law demands righteousness while grace provides righteousness. The law brought out God to man, but grace brings men to God. The law sentenced the living man to death, but grace brings dead men to life. The law makes known the will of God. Grace makes known the heart of God. How many prefer grace this morning? To live by grace. We're no longer under law, but under grace. And grace is is lovely because grace is Jesus. Jesus died for us so that the worst of sinners would know the greatest of salvation. Jesus is a Savior who is able to save unto the uttermost, or as D.L. Moody used to say, unto the guttermost, them that come unto God by him. Without grace, it is hopeless. There is no salvation apart from grace. To reject grace is to reject the only means by which God's provided a means of salvation. Our case was desperate. And I I think really, unless you can really come to appreciate the grace of God and ask for, see, the the response of faith 
to grace is more grace. God, give us more grace. And I love the song that we sang this morning, that second song that we sang. I didn't, it was a new song. I never heard it before. And it was talking about asking God for more grace and asking God for more mercy. Because the response of faith in receiving grace is to ask God for more. The Bible tells us that the good news is not good advice. It is, in fact, the greatest news that we will ever hear. The grace of God is most clearly seen and demonstrated, perhaps, not in choosing the most depraved among us, the the, the worst sinner in the room. When God chose to to seek the poster boy for the first century of, of the example of grace, he didn't choose like a Barabbas. Remember Barabbas? He's the guy that Pilate you know, released because of the bloodthirsty crowd that were crying for Jesus to be crucified. Barabbas, Barabbas was, a, was a robber and he was a murderer. He was guilty of, of sedition. He, he, was, he was guilty both before the Roman law and before Jewish law, and he was waiting execution. If Barabbas would have, I mean, he was such a nasty guy that if Barabbas would have wound up in, with jailhouse justice, you know what I mean by jailhouse justice? If somebody would have put a shiv in, 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 in him, I don't, th- I don't think even his mother would have cried. No one would have shed a tear if, if he was gone. But when God sought to use as a pattern for the mercy and the grace of God, he didn't choose a Barabbas. He chose the rabbi to become the pattern of God's mercy. He chose, he chose the self-righteous Pharisee, one who had who had these pedigrees of, of, of nobility, of being of the tribe of Benjamin, a faithful tribe that had remained faithful to God. A Pharisee is touching the law blameless. He chose a, a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who went about thinking that he was doing God a service by dragging believers out of their homes, torturing them, putting some to death, compelling them to blaspheme. That's the one that God chose. You and I would have never chose him because grace is so amazing. Grace is beyond what we're able to ask or think. God chose the self-righteous, unbelieving, grace-fighting Saul of Tarsus because there's nothing, listen, there's nothing more repulsive in the sight of God than self-righteousness. And so Paul wrote this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Not was, but am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus, might display his unlimited patience as an example or as a pattern for those who would believe upon him and receive eternal life. Paul became the poster boy in the first century. And people began to say to themselves, if God could save him, if God could not only save him, but transform him and change him and, 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 and literally turn him around 180 degrees in, into the place where this became the most passionate of all the apostles. This became the most grace-preaching preacher of all of the New Testament believers. When I was 12 years old, I uh, got sick. It was a Friday night, I remember. 
uh, I got really sick. I had pain in my abdomen. And uh, the next day was Saturday. I mean, all that night, I was just, you know, just in pain, probably had a, a fever. Uh, my mom took me to the, we had just moved from, from Brooklyn to Queens. And, and so we didn't have a doctor yet, but mom looked up in the yellow pages and found the doctor. We went to the doctor and, and uh, he examined me and said, you know, probably got a stomach virus and, you know, just go home and rest and, you know, drink some fluids. You'll, you'll be all right. But I wasn't all right. I got worse. And I wound up in the hospital. And I remember the, the, the doctor who examined me, he was a surgeon. His name was Dr. Colin Toome. He, he, in fact, he, he was one of the family doctors. And in those days, doctors did everything. If you were a surgeon, you were also, you know, a, a doctor of regular practice as well. But, but uh, he examined me. He said, you know, we'll just have to watch you, see, see how it goes. And that night, in the middle of the night, they called, me, they called them back to the hospital and had an emergency surgery. I had a ruptured appendicitis, had gangrene spreaded throughout my body, had a drain in my body for three weeks, but, but that guy was instrumental in saving my life. My situation was not, this was not elective surgery. I've had elective surgery in, in the past. This was, not, this was desperation. See, unless you come to the place in your life where you see that grace is absolutely indispensable, it's absolutely imperative that you receive grace, that there's no other way of being saved apart from grace. Just as there was no other way for me to, for, for me to survive unless there was surgery, unless there was somebody who radically took my, my life in their hands and altered the course of my life. And Jesus radically took the course of our life radically by giving himself in sacrifice for us. Amazing. But this is what he did for us. This is the grace of God. This is, this is our God at work. In indispensable kindness and goodness to us. J.L. Packett said, the grace of God is lovely. It's, it's love freely shown toward guilty sinners contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their merit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. There was nothing in us that commended us to God. There was nothing about us. God didn't foresee that we would have faith, that we would be good, that someday that we would be worthy. We would never, never, God... God, there was nothing in us to provoke the grace of God, but God freely of himself gave us grace. Sam Storm says, the most fundamental characteristic of divine grace is that it presupposes sin and guilt. The most fundamental characteristic of divine grace, it presupposes sin and guilt. Grace has meaning only when men are seen as fallen, unworthy of salvation, and liable to eternal wrath. It's precisely because people today have lost sight of the depths of human depravity that they think so little of divine grace. When's the last time you just thank God for the grace that has saved you, the grace of God that was lavished upon you, undeserved, unearned, and unasked for, I was sought, Jesus said, by those who, I was found by those that, that sought me not, Jesus said. This grace 
is a gift. It's a gift for all eternity. It's the, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the energy of the Spirit of God transforming and changing the lives that what once were li- lived by the course of this world. Now we live by, we, we live by, the, by heaven's course. Grace is not only a divine act that, that began our salvation, it is, it is necessary that grace keeps us. It's necessary that grace brings us to a final outcome. It's all of grace. There's no room for any of us to brag. I love that old song, Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, a ransom, shed for us his precious blood. On the mount of crucifixions, fountains open deep and wide through the floodgates of God's mercy float a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kiss the guilty world with love. We were guilty. And apart from grace, that's all we are or ever will be. In the grip of grace, I'll just close with this last quote. Max Lucado said this, ponder the achievement of God. He doesn't condone our sin. He doesn't compromise his standard. He doesn't ignore our rebellion. Or does he relax his demands rather than dismiss our sin? He assumes our sin and incredibly, he sentences himself. God's holiness is honored Our sin is punished and we are redeemed. God does what we cannot do so that we can be what we dare not dream, perfect before God. Grace is not only the great equalizer and the great humbler, but it is the great sanctifier that has set us apart. This, beloved, this morning is grace. And this, beloved, this morning is our God for whom we have one of many, more than 10,000 reasons for our heart to find, to sing his praises. Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, once again, we thank you today for grace that has been lavished upon the undeserving the unworthy, and those that are not even seeking the grace of God. Father, what can we do except say thank you, Father, for the exceeding riches of your grace and your kindness toward us? Where would we be without the grace of God? And where would we be without the God of grace? who has lavished his love upon us. Father, I I pray that that as we ponder and as we think and as we muse over these things, that the energy of the Holy Spirit, who is called the Spirit of grace, who comes to bring to us transforming, sanctifying, setting us apart, grace, because your grace is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient for us in every situation. I pray that grace would be released in this house in a new dimension, Lord God, that we become grace givers, 
that because we understand the grace of God, it's more than something that we're to know. It's something that we're to experience. And that even our conversation, the Bible says, is to be seasoned with salt, with grace, grace words. May we be so transformed by this grace this morning. We all sit together. Amen.